Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Awesome. We got uh, our audio issues fixed, which is uh, always the, uh, the, the, the tense part of doing a podcast is when something's not working. So thanks for sticking that out. No problem, Mark. We were just catching up on the trials and tribulations over the years of audio challenges. And if you're not trying to be challenged by at least one or two environmental factors, whether it's fly wildlife or trains, planes and automobiles, you're not doing it right. Oh, I know. I know. I, I don't think, you know, I like to share this with folks because if you're not a podcaster, um, sometimes behind the scenes, <clears throat> this is the most gut-wrenching things happen to podcasts. Uh, the, the biggest fear is losing an audio, not recording, you know, somebody doesn't get recorded or something corrupts with a file. Um, when you're first starting out or when we were first starting out, you're learning all of this stuff and, you know, you got an echo in a podcast or something like that and you're literally like, like in the fetal position on the floor like wanting to throw up because <laughs> yeah. it's like, so, and it doesn't, you don't get well, you get better at it, but I released a podcast this morning, which was two parts. And the second part, mm-hmm. it actually defaulted to the mic on my new webcam, not my big boom mic. So the audio is different on the two. And it's like, oh, after all these years, you think it would work out. But oh, yeah. the joys. Rachel Attila, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark, for having me. I was looking forward to it. I'm excited to see that you're working with the Blood Origin guys. It's really nice to have a voice here on the Canadian side. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a great fit. I love, I love it. I love being able to now step out and have a larger team of people to work from. Uh, everything from uh, the graphics guy, Adrian, is just amazing. And I'm just like, why did I used to do this by myself? I, I did a crappy job. Now we got professionals helping and, and uh, just, yeah, different connections. Uh, we all know each other. It's opened the door for us, you know, on the Hunter Conservationist podcast to more followers worldwide, which mm-hmm. I'm excited about as well, because 
gets the Canadian message out. Well, that's, I think, the biggest goal of any podcast is is trying to foster communication in an ever-changing digital era and keep the communication going on a growing community. And I think that's one thing where we have, in such a weird way, we have such amazing opportunities these days to be able to, you know, if you have a bit of gumption, reach out and just share what's going on. And I think if you're sharing what's going on, you're able to kind of keep the momentum going, whether that's, you know, talking about the grizzly bears or anything with gun control in Canada, not to dive right into the hot and heavies, but, you know, if anything, you... Gravel truck. This is when you know you live rural on a logging road, so I'm really sorry. That's okay. I I sometimes Uh, have dogs barking or... Yeah, I try to do a little video. There's the fly. I I try to do a little video outside and Curtis's rooster starts crowing away or whatever. I'm like, whatever. Whatever. I, I think people uh, people like it. You can't it. fake that stuff. No. Yeah. You're authentic. You're authentic rural rural people. <laughs> it's like yeah, we don't have ambulances exactly. going by, so that that's okay. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about you, about Rachel and and let people hear some of your stories to connect with, you know, with you. What was your path into becoming a guide? I'm going to be really honest. It was horses. <laughs> I grew up in Kelowna and, um, you know, very outdoorsy parents at the time. And, um, they very cunningly, actually, I had an opportunity to go North to a hunting camp when I was a kid. And I was right about the age. I think I was in grade six and I started to get really aggressive on, uh, shopping for a horse in the newspaper and quite candidly, you know, an outfitter has multiple horses. So well played to my parents. Um, and they'd ship me north for the summer when I was a kid. And I had never seen, like an outfitting camp was not in my realm. I had no idea what to expect. And I remember as a kid, you know, every year you get a little bit more cognizant of where did this person come from? And you can start and put two and two together. And um, it actually, I came about it very naively because I just wanted to be on the back of a horse. But when I realized that those horses could take you into some of the most pristine parts of British Columbia and some of the most remote parts of BC. I started to really fall in love with the nostalgia of the history of guide outfitting. And then as it would be, uh, John DeVries, I mentored under him. Lord knows I burnt a lot of pancakes, had some really bad horse wrangling episodes, um, learning on which horses not to unhobble first. Uh, running across the mountain, screaming for help as a child. And um, there actually was an opportunity where John stayed back a few times and I had just acquired my guide's license. I think I was 18. And he's like, oh, this one's on you. I mean, I wasn't even legal to carry a gun, but uh, I got to lead a few of the hunts up the hill. And I mean, you make beginner's mistakes, but the experience, I, I fell in love with it. It was, it was an adventure. If anything, it was a raw adventure each each hunter it's the same process you know you're still stalking game but there's so many different variables and I'd have to say the rest is history I my inner romantic wanted to be in the middle of nowhere living out you know I'm sure I don't know maybe I'm aging myself here but there used to be on tv Dr. Quinn medicine woman uh Jane Seymour Yep, and I remember it. Yep. I, yep. That's, I remember that's nothing. I would talk years. about Little House on the Prairie and you'd be like, what was that? <laughs> there you go. Child of the 90s here. That was old for me. But I uh, I don't know. There, there was something very raw about 
just being out there, you had to exist. I mean, you had to go wrangle the horses in the morning. There was no Uber Eats. I mean, back then we didn't have Uber. We didn't even know what that was. Um, so you had to make bread. You have to do all of the things that today we just take for granted. So that's kind of what, how I got started. A bunch of the guys at the time, they didn't want to come work in the bush. They had a hard time finding guides and I kind of just started putting my hand up. And through trial and error, I was able to get a full-time roster and you know, you don't start with the very expensive hunts, but do you still start? You know, it's still a lot of responsibility with the goat and moose and then eventually work your way up to guiding the sheep hunts. And from there, I went from BC to the Yukon to the Northwest Territories and circled back around a couple of times. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, you started, you started young in it. Like, I mean, for, for somebody who wasn't born into an outfitter's family, like I think that would make, you know, you see lots of, lots of outfitters and their kids are like from the time mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're helping with the horses, they're out in the camps. Um, my wife's family had a guide outfitting territory for, you know, 40 some years in the Rocky Mountains. My father-in-law had mm -hmm. it and then my brother-in-law took over and yeah, like kids were out in camp and, you know, kind of kind of grew up with it but for someone like you to kind of like fall into it from outside outfitting families is that's a pretty unique story oh thank you it it definitely it had its trials especially starting out there was not many female guides um i remember devlin brad well she was bradford at the time um she was over to the west of me and when I first started getting going, actually Meg Simpson, now Collins, um, she had guided a bit. And then Glenda Grote, she's a really good friend of mine. Um, we all kind of came up together and we were kind of that first real era of women in their 20s guiding because it was, you know, there was a lot of, I don't want to say machoism, but around a hunting camp, right? And the women were usually the cooks or the wranglers. Um and there were, like, I mean, Yukon Bell, she was a very famous guide um, back turn of the century. Oh, gosh, probably from, like, the gold mining days. Um, and that's, I don't know. It, it honestly, if you want something in life bad enough, you'll figure out a way to get into it. But I definitely had a lot of people turn me down, especially when I first started guiding. You know, not only they'd find out I was a young female, but, you know, I was in my 20s and... You know, that's one thing I've really tried to maintain and encourage other young women is if you want to go to an outfitting camp, there's a certain level of professionalism that you have to extend, especially when you go to the trade shows, you know, you're, you're preventing, you're preventing any kind of, um, I don't know, there's a tactful way to say this, and I'm trying to find the right word, but I think you know what I'm getting at. There's, there's a level of professionalism in any situation, whether you're male or female, but especially when you're embarking into kind of a, a different transect that you have to really be cognizant of. And that was something that, you know, even on my own social media, I've always had the mentality is I want someone's wife to look at my social media and go, you know what, I feel comfortable with you going hunting with her. You know, she's not on there trying to sell you anything, but her as her profession, gotcha. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally and I think does. Yeah. And when I first started, you weren't really, you know, it was kind of frowned upon if you were wearing mascara or, you know, I remember jokingly, um, some of the cooks that I had worked with when I was a kid, 
when they would get hired from the Western producer, which was a, um, I think it still actually runs a magazine. It is. They would be looking for cooks and they'd get sent an itinerary. You're not supposed to wear shorts above the knees, no t-shirts, no crop tops, no nothing. And it's like, nowadays it's a lot more free in the bush where, you know, people are wearing whatever fashions are when they're in camp or what, what have you. But it's just really funny to see how, times are changing in a lot of ways, which is good. And it's not all bad, but for myself, I know when I, 15 years ago, it definitely was not as easy to get a job as a female guide. Yeah. I, I would truly appreciate that. When, when Curtis first started fly fish guiding, um, his, his boss said like most of our clients are like in their sixties and they're retired. He said, these are mostly men. He said, these are guys that have worked their entire lives, seven days a week, 20 hours a day to build businesses. And they're now very, very wealthy. They've sold, they retired. And they now are taking on these things late in their life because they spent so much time being business people and he kind of got the little talk about like they've done a lot to get here and to have the money to be able to do this in in late in their life and so the thing about professionalism and their experience and all that and and he didn't have a problem with it you know because he was raised like you, you know like you with good good values and that sort of stuff but but they sounded like kind of a similar sort of message that you were getting to about the professionalism so cool Oh, 100%. And the, and the thing I've had to learn too, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female as a guide, there's there's a way in communicating with these people. And a lot of them are very A-type personality. Like you said, they've been very driven. They've, you know, made sacrifices certain places in their life, but now they're ready to enjoy them. And so I find a lot of what I've been successful with is open communication. Um, you know, and these people are used to being in control. So when we go out on a hunt scenario, it's like I, it's learning how to talk to these people because the last thing you want to do, you're in customer service. You want to be able to make this as much their experience as it is the teeny bit that you are. And one thing actually my Auntie Wendy always told me is smile, they pay your wages because if they weren't here, you wouldn't be here as well. (laughs) Right. So, you know, we can control our attitudes, uh, what we try and put on the table. We can't control the weather. We can't control the fishing or the animals but we can try and be in the best place at the right time and do all the other variables to the best of our abilities. But at the end of the day, you got to have a smile on your face because you're what they remember. Oh, no, that's, that's cool. That's, that's a good way to look at it. Now here's, here's the heart of something I really want to dig into and, and hear your thoughts on this. So, so guiding is hunting, you know, like you're, you're guiding someone else on their hunting experience. When I go out hunting, I'm just, taking myself out and, and my dog doing my own thing. If I want to do something, I, you know, I just do whatever I want. Right. I, I only have to kind of look at, look after me and for, for people like me that just hunt by ourselves, it's a very personal experience and we're putting ourselves first when we do that. But when you choose the path to become a guide, you're doing that for someone else's personal experience. It's their hunt. It's their animal. It's their photographs. It's their memories. And I see very much that there's something about this that you've put somebody else ahead of yourself. 
like you you could have went oh my god like as a teenager this hunting stuff is so cool with horses and stuff like forget all of that i want to be the person out in the mountains i want that moose to be mine and the mule deer to be mine and the goat to be mine and over my lifetime i'm going to have all these great memories and trophies and stuff and, and but you're not you're putting someone else's hunting experience ahead of your own um, robbie has this philosophy uh, in everything that we do it emanates in everything we do which is which is this i second mm -hmm. we're putting other people first in the job that we're doing and i see that very much as as being a guide what 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 made you choose that what what about putting someone else's hunting experience ahead of yourself was so powerful to choose this path for you in hunting it comes down to i got to make people happy okay and as simple as that sounds um you know we we had that film launch with sika uh, this year, we actually we filmed it back in 2017. And it actually filming that had a very profound reflection for myself on who I am and why I do what I do. And as a guide, you know, a lot of a lot of, you know, going through a divorced family. Um, I was the eldest between my brother and I. So I was very much kind of the mitigator. I was the people pleaser. You you grow up and I, it gave me so much satisfaction helping people. And maybe that's a metaphor because I didn't know how to help myself. But a lot of it came down to I really had no one to go hunting with and to go and do these trips. It made me feel very content to be able to help give such a positive experience to other people. And in that selflessness, I it, it allowed me to get to go hunting and live a lifestyle and get paid to live this dream lifestyle. So for me, it felt like a win-win scenario. And I think that's probably why we still, as guides, you know, you see, you see people into their 60s and 70s that still get the itch and they go up and they go guiding. And it's, it's that passion that they have for what's around the next corner, what's over the next mountain, or perhaps there's different country they want to go and see. And really, they're just trying to nurture their own in, inner adventurist. And along the way, you get to take someone with you. And, you know, I, I finally killed a stone sheep for myself this winter. I've, or this fall, sorry. And I had tried several little attempts. I'd had a big trip planned and it had a big failure, but we ended up turning around and making lemonade out of lemons a couple of years ago. And I'm not going to lie, probably like getting to take something as a guide it almost meant that much more to me and I, and I was an absolute wreck. I'm going to share the video later on, but I, I held my composure until the time that I actually made the shot. When I realized I hit the animal where I was hitting, it was just instant waterworks and trembling. And I readied my gun and I'd laid it down and, and the, I was just, I, I can still feel the vibration in my hands as we walked that last, I shot him at 556 yards. And, uh, I don't remember walking. I know, I know I did walk <laughs> from, you know, where I shot to where the ram was, but every single hunt that I had ever been on, I, I remember father and son teams. I remember like hunts that I'd been a part of as a kid where someone had saved up and it had been their father's dream. And all of a sudden it was them there because their father had passed away. So it was their pilgrimage. And 
it was just probably one of the most emotional experiences, um, you know, besides the sheep hunt with my dad. Um, because it just, it means so much more when you get to share in such a raw journey with another human being. You push yourself when you're out there. You have to rely on each other. You are literally pushing your physical strength, your mental strength. You're working through the environmental factors. Like every raw bit of experience that every TV show tries to fabricate or movie, you're living it. 100% down to the wire. If you make a bad decision, it will haunt you for the rest of your hunt. It could impact you physically, mentally, um, spiritually. I mean, and I think for me, like, I get so much enjoyment out of going hunting just for the act of going hunting and seeing new country that I enjoy guiding because I don't, as a hunter, I mean, we get to kill one moose a year if you're lucky enough to be successful. As a guide, you get to be a part of several. So for me, that's, one, it's making people happy. Two, it's the adventure. And three, when you've got to be a part of so many of those meaningful hunts that have such amazing and profound backstories, it just makes makes it so much more special. Wow. Do you think your experience, the one the one that you just shared with us, do you think it would have been as profound for you had you not got there as a guide? Because it, it almost sounds like it's like the emotions that were bottled up from seeing other people's dreams unfold and their emotions unfold was something that you carried in into that hunt and it kind of mm -hmm. all manifested it. Do you think it would have been as special if that would have been something that you were pursuing 20 years by yourself? Like, did those experiences uh, make it better, I guess, more special I think for so. you? Okay. I really think so because I, well, I'm going to be really honest. When I was 16 and I started putting two and two together about these people that were coming to this hunting camp and they were shooting, you know, their, their four sheep and getting their grand slam, I was like, ah, by the time I'm 30, I'll have my grand slam too. Well, here we are in our early 30s and I'm now a half slammer. So, you know, it's, um, I think, you know, if I could go back 20 years to when I, when I was a kid, I mean, who knows what that journey as a hunter might have been. I might have had five huge wild adventures and never even got to see a stone sheep. So it would have been something to me in a different way. Um, I'm not going to lie, it wasn't a journey of epic proportions because it was just my good girlfriend and I and my dog. And we threw literally a dart at a map and changed our airstrip last minute. <laughs> so we had no intel going into where I went. Um, Those are the best trips, though. Oh, they are. Doesn't matter whether and it's a vacation or a hunting trip. The more you plan it out and the longer you spend with it, it's like the ones where you're just like, "Hey, what are you doing on Saturday?" And it's like you just yeah. scramble <laughs> around. They're like, they're like these the best adventures ever. So, oh yeah. Well, the best cool. part is my girlfriend and I we became friends in 2017, and it was always kind of our joke that we would go for stone sheep together, sheep together. And uh, last year, I was planning on going with her. It was going to be our first attempt together. And I ended up getting wrangled up to the Yukon to cook and guide for my boyfriend. Um, and then she ended up getting proposed to on her trip. And her her now fiancé had stepped in and kind of said, hey, I, I want to do this hunt with Kayla by myself. And I understand now my feeler was a little hurt at first, but it all worked out. And uh, so it meant something for like just us two girls to go and from start to finish do it because 
It's not a hunt. It's not an easy hunt. No, sheep no, hunting isn't easy. I, you can, the trailheads you can't drive to. You know, when we say remote in BC, a lot of people are like, "Oh yeah, I've been to the Bob Marshall." It's like, oh yeah, well, times up by about a million and a few less roads, and we'll go from there. But it, it uh, it's uh, it can be scary too. Oh, you know, I remember I remember a few trips, and it's like everything's all great. And then you're sitting at the lake and you watch the plane taxi out and take off and go down the valley. And then finally it's a long ways away and it's total silence. And you're, and you visualize like on the map of the province where you actually have been dropped off. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, shit, what did I do? Oh, yeah. I could, I could die out here. Nobody's going to know for two weeks. That's, I think that's one of the things that I love about it in that sense is that your minuscule little self is so small in the grand scheme of things and when that plane flies out of earshot you realize how small and insignificant a role you actually play in the greater world yeah. you are just but one organism bumping around trying to find a sheep overloaded with a backpack yeah and, and, and nothing nothing's gonna look out for you out there accommodate no. your needs no oh exactly. what an experience it's yeah. I Can... remember when I first, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, when I, f I went to work in the NWT, I started the first year. Harold didn't have a job for me as a full-time guide, but he's like, well, if you can flip a pancake, we can probably put you on trail crew. Well, it's kind of a running joke. Everyone thought I didn't know how to cook. And it took me some, a few practice tries to get the hang of cooking everything over a campfire again. But by the end of it, I was, uh, guiding a couple of caribou hunts but he had asked me to come back as a backpack guide and that first year working for him as a backpack guide i'll tell you what when you get dropped off and you're a three-hour round trip to the front end of their country and it's just you and you're waiting for that plane to come back you know you definitely you start looking around at a lot of things a little bit differently <laughs> it's a uh, solstice time in the mountains can definitely make you reprioritize a lot that you do in your life <laughs> And no, it's, it's a, it's a great, great place to kind of like, if you get a few moments just to kind of sit and think about your place in the world and your life and, and whatnot, there's a lot of that's happened on tops of mountains. I think for a lot of, a lot of us hunters, what, what is a memory that really stands out for you with a hunter? Like something that you were just like, this is, this this defines why I come here every year to take other people out hunting. What What is something that just... Hmm. The thing is, there's a little bit from each hunter that I get. Okay. Are, are they all with, different? Think, some or of them are, theme? yeah. You know, just as soon as you think there is a theme, someone will come along and trump you. Okay, um, okay. But the one thing is, is that people are there for a reason. They just didn't on a whim decide to go sheep hunting. They didn't on a whim decide to fly halfway around the world. They're there for their own unique purpose. They're driven by some factor, whether it was a legacy of their hunting buddy or their father or their mother or brother, you know, whether it was picking up a book from Jack O'Connor as a child and reading through, you know, the majesty of the North and the remoteness and the old pack safaris that used to go on for 21 days. Like, people are there because there's some kind of magic that inspired them. 
you know, there, there are your hunters that are there because they're collecting a, you know, a tick box to go after their North American slam or, you know, they're a big 29, but I mean, those people still, they're diehard hunters. And as much as those people are there committing themselves to that hunt, you know, whether it is to complete this categoristic, um, kind of hunting menu, you might say at the end of the at the end of it, they're still there experiencing everything with you. And the one thing that I love is people's stories on why they're there and how they got to be there. And I know when I was trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do, like every person does when you're questing through your 20s, the thing that I found is that there's no right or wrong way to live your life. If you're a good human, you work hard, whatever it is that inspires you, if you have a bit of gumption to go after it, my goodness, go after it with your whole heart. And I think the biggest thing that I take away from these hunters is that, you know, to go on these hunts and to remove themselves from their own geographical location and put themselves through the training to get to the point where they're there, hopefully with the animal down the barrel. Um, I have respect for each and every one of them in a different way mm. because everyone is so different. And I think that's one thing that when you go into it as a guide, you know, there's certain things that, yes, they are kind of routine. You pack your bags, you go up the mountain, you find the sheep, you, you pack up, you go down. But a lot of what a mountain will do when you're packing up is, you know, you're carrying everything metaphorically, you know, that that person has brought to that specific hunt. Um, and you ended up being, you end up kind of being like a best friend on the mountain for 10 days. So you get to learn a lot about each other. And I think that's one cool thing about this industry is, you know, you come as strangers and you leave as friends. Yep. And I, at the end of it, you have a greater community, which historically is what hunting is providing yeah. for your community. Yeah. Those, those types of hunts will definitely bring out the best and the worst of us. And yeah, you go, wow, that guy totally lost the plot because he couldn't open the boil in the foil package for dinner and just lost his <laughs> lost his cool or whatever on a on a on a package of food and you're but now is is the the people's stories these individual stories i love that word that you chose magic uh everybody's there because some something magical has has brought them there is is that a hard process to figure out as a guide are people just like like lay it out or do you reach some kind of moment during the hunt, like a high time or a low time where this comes out or does your intuitions pick up on it? How does that, how does that work? I, uh, there's always like this, if there's, if I was a cartoonist, you know, and you could kind of make this script of, you know, the cartoon from when the, the guys arrive at camp and you see like the guys standing around the horse string and the hunter's got all his gear and camel on and you're loading up and everyone's kind of pent up cause they don't know each other. And, I would honestly have to say it's kind of around day three, you know, usually travel day one, you're figuring each other out, you're, you're trying to help accommodate and you're kind of sizing each other up where it's like, okay, how much can I help you? Or are you going to let me help you? You know, how proficient of a horseman or, you know, just those little things where it's like, okay, kind of get each other figured out by day two. And usually by day three, you know, if, if you've been successful, there's a huge high of emotions and the floodgates usually open, so to say. But if you haven't seen anything, 
I find day three is usually, you know, you've put a couple good hard days in and now you're starting to see where that person's work ethic is. You're really starting to see a bit more of their structural integrity as a human where it's like, okay, we've seen nothing. We're going to keep going. We've got a huge hike ahead of us and let's go climb that next mountain metaphorically and physically because the sheep aren't here or the animals aren't here. And that's usually where, you know, your first big peak of getting to talk and sit and share stories when you're glassing and, you know, there's, there's kind of questions I like asking people and, and a lot of times they have a lot of questions for you as well. So it's, it's kind of a neat way, you know, to go on this pilgrimage together, if you will, after an animal that you're, you know, you're kind of hoping is around the next corner and you, you still want to earn it. I think that's one thing that's pretty neat too, is it, you know, sometimes you get super lucky and a terrific animal by chance steps out day one. You don't look a gift horse in the mouth, but you can kind of see those guys that, you know, were hoping for the full experience and as super excited and elated as they are that they got an animal, they're kind of like, well, you know what? Well, can we, can we stay? And those are the ones that are my favorite because they want to be there. They don't want to just fly back to camp, get on the next plane, go back home to their business. They want to help make a fire. They want to go and stay in a rustic cabin and go glass up that hillside or open up trail and, and be a part of this experience that they paid for. And that's, that's why I fell in love with it. And that's the part that I love showing them is because to me, it's still, I mean, that's how the West was settled, you know, pack trains and explorers. And I think as long as there's this human need for that, I hope, you know, we'll never see the end of the guide outfitting. Yep. Wow. That's an amazing story. Thanks. Thanks for sharing all that. It just, it really is coming across to me like just about, and I, and I think, you know, we know this, how human hunting is mm -hmm. like, it just, it, you know, and that's one of the goals of, you know, these, these podcasts is hopefully people that aren't hunters are listening to it and they're, they're seeing like a thread of themes through different people's stories and, you know, and, and why are people out there, why they're doing these things and, and, uh, just very human, very human mm -hmm. stories. That's, you know, when you're talking about people that are crying and growing adults that are crying over things and stuff from their childhood is coming out, you know, and, and and everything it's like the, these are really powerful things you know in our oh. lives and if if hunting is a way that helps humans and humanity it's like that's what we're gonna do is we're gonna stand up for that because well you have to think of it too it's it's a vulnerability mm. as a guide you have to it, it, you have to think of it in a way like this person is a very proficient hunter at home you know, I've had some exceptional hunters that I've had the opportunity to hunt with over the years. But they might not necessarily know anything about the mountain style. So they're vulnerable to the point where they want to know. They're a sponge. It's like, how do I hunt sheep? What are, how, what can I get away with? What can I learn? Even with moose or caribou. And I think that's a really cool part about the greater community is, is accepting vulnerabilities in the essence of learning. And I think that's one thing, you know, you look back through the cave art and a harvest was brought back and shared within the community and the story was told. And, and I think that's the cool part about podcasts and the continuation of magazine articles is 
that's our greater campfire now. That's our sharing pot. And, you know, it, I'm sure it irks the rest of us when people are attacking it or now they're trying to take away certain firearms to be able to do such things. And it's just, to me, they're attacking so much more than the surface of the gun owners and the hunters. They're attacking culture. And to me, if we lose that culture, we are paradise lost. Yeah. Wow. Very, very powerful. Thanks. Thanks for opening up your heart and sharing some of those stories. I, I think this is really oh, going to resonate with people. Uh, just to wrap up, tell us some projects that you have on the go. I know there's two of great, great, great interest. So I'll narrow them down for you. Not all the projects. So I'm just going to pull the knife out a little bit here as we go through this. Yeah. So tell folks what you're trying to do with your wilderness carry project so that people can follow along and um, the film that that's out uh where can people find that this winter and watch it uh and those sorts of things for sure well i'm gonna start with a happy one um the film that came out is uh with sika in 2017 my dad and i uh, got to go up to the nwt as part of a thank you um for years of service i got to take a sheet for myself and i come from a divorced family and it was a blended family, still is a blended family. Um, and it was kind of the first real big trip that my dad and I had done together to that kind of epic proportion. Um, and it was kind of, it was a film that has, it left me very vulnerable um, because you're talking about, you know, not just what you want the world to see, but you're talking about the parts of the past that might have hurt you that you might have had to grow from. And um, I actually have a sheep sitting right here above my office, so it's pretty fun to be able to look at that all the time. But the film is on YouTube. Um, it's How Far We've Come. It was a production with my buddy Adam Foss and a bunch of the directors that we've worked together on. And it was shelved for a lot of years because we didn't know how to tell that story. And I didn't know if I was ready to tell that story. And this year we pushed for it Last fall, we started pushing for it and that we were ready to put it out and it launched this Father's Day um, back in June. Yeah. So we can have a link to that um, with the podcast here. But diving into my current heartache and <laughs> trials and tribulations, um, now that everyone knows that I've been a guide for since Jesus was a cowboy here, <laughs> one of my big things when it comes to clients is safety for myself, for my livestock, for my crew. And years ago, I had really started looking into the wilderness carry and authorization to um, carry in Canada. So it's a permitting process here in Canada that for trappers, foresters, miners, people that work remotely that can prove, um, you know, that they are their first and last line of defense and they are running into wildlife. Um, there's different faculties, but the hardest part with this is that Obviously, since 2021 um, and since 2020, there's been a very hard grab on our pistols. Last year, October 21st and 2022nd, there was a freeze on our handguns. So my plight this year, I have taken off. I'm a registered trapper now here at home. Um, I'm also here with my partner and his family, and we ranch in central remote British Columbia, as well as I still actively work as a guide. And right now I am going through a video series and sequence 
helping debunk and put a lot of kind of the taboo and mysterious parts of going through this permitting process to rest. So I, I'm new to this whole video side. I've worked with Jim Shockey. I've filmed and I've done photography for a lot of people, but I really struggle sometimes when it's me in front of the camera and I have this imposter syndrome um, that I battle with every day. And I really, it's made me jump outside of my comfort zone because it's a story that's been on my heart for so long. And it's unfortunate right now that we're dealing with all of the handgun freezes on importation and everything else because there are so many people that would actively and responsibly use handguns as the tools they are meant to be for personal protection for that other clients, themselves, property, not the gang-related violence that we see on all of our media. Yep. And if on my YouTube channel it's coming up, I actually... I've got all the paperwork in front of me where I have been redoing a bunch of forms and information and I'm hoping to basically build a formula for everyone else that they can kind of tick their boxes and go, yes, I can do this or no, I'm going to have to wait or maybe there's an avenue that they didn't know about. Um, just to be able to utilize them as respectful, responsible tools here in Canada. Wow. Because if no one else talks about it, it's going to get swept under the bridge and... My greatest fear is that's another part of our heritage that's going to be lost or taken from us. Yep. And someone had to stick their head up. So here I am, full <laughs> sticking, sticking your <laughs> sticking your head up to sticking get through the up. through the process of trying to get authorization to carry a handgun with you in the mountains and in your job. Um, so your YouTube channel is. It's just, if you search Rachel Attila, okay. um, it'll pop up there and I've got, uh, a series of playlists that's going to be hitting. Um, the first vlog happened right around Halloween. Um, I've actually had to pull some of the videos because of yesterday's conversations with the CFO and the RCMP. So I'm actually, after our conversation, Mark, I'm headed back out to my local range, uh, to go and refilm a few of the segments and actually take people through the paperwork process. Um, they're It'll watching what you're doing. Successful. Sorry? They're watching what you're doing. Oh, you have no idea. Wow. This sounds like an mm -hmm. episode in itself and they're they're Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. And so I'm I'm basically what I'm trying to do is I'm helping show the right way to go through the paperwork. Okay. Um, because cool. there's so many loopholes. And and the biggest thing I found, Mark, the testing. There's one or two videos online. They're not super helpful, not very clear, um, not very aesthetically pleasing to want to watch that don't have a very clear, concise formula. So I'm building that because it's something that I'm passionate about um, with a bunch of outdated information. And I've, I have been wearing out the phone lines between the CFO, the RCMP, um, and some of the local testers in our area trying to get it nailed down. Because when I called yesterday, asking for the process if I was to submit this application before or after I did my testing for proficiency they're like oh well you should have sent it in about eight months ago oh, <laughs> and it's like well I, I had this form filled out eight months ago and I I was ready and the person that I had called in eight months ago because I keep a diary of everything told me that I wasn't to send in this form that I should prove proficient first and go through all of the training and then 
do my training, send in my form, and then hope that somewhere in the next millennia I might get approved for wilderness carry. Jeez. So that was this yesterday. This is a journey. This is a journey. I think folks are going to uh, <laughs> uh, love following you on this and and learn, learning about it. So you also keep folks up to date on this project through your Instagram page, which you're su do, yeah. super easy to find. Just Rachel Attila, your name, you pop up, you get the little blue check mark. So uh, folks follow Rachel um, and follow her on that journey and everything else that she's doing and the YouTube channel, which may have a video up one day and take it down the next day as, as she goes on this process. But uh, yeah, this is super exciting. I hope like probably like lots of people, um, by the time you have a clear, concise path laid out for us, we see some changes in this country for those of us that weren't able to purchase a sidearm prior to the prohibition, we'll actually be able to do it in the future and, and do what you're doing. So thanks for being a pioneer again in a new area of, of hunting, pioneering and adventure probably not as spiritually rewarding and calming as, <laughs> as being in the mountains looking for sheep. So well, cool. Hey, the greatest part is that if it helps someone else or prevents a fatal attack. Yeah. I mean, there you are again. At the end of the day, that's where it's, yep. that's I, where it hits home. I second you're, you're doing all of this and putting yourself out there because you want to help other people. Mm -hmm. And that's so inspirational. Thanks, Rachel. Oh, thank you. This was great. I, I, I loved it. Thanks for coming on the show. And uh, thank you. Look forward to doing some more stuff with you and following along on this journey. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate it. It's like you said, it's it's keeping the narratives alive. Mm. There you go. And you have a great narrative. Folks, Rachel Attila, uh, find her on social media, follow her and interact with her because she is awesome. She interacts with everybody. And uh, yeah, great person to follow. Very inspirational. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Mark.